0: I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to read for us verses 18 to 25, Genesis chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 18 and read through to verse 25. If you're using one of the uh, Bibles that's provided for you and the chair there around you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 2, page 2. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. This is God's word. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. Amen. This is God's Word. Well, currently we are in a series entitled, The Genesis of Marriage. And for several weeks, we are going to seek to understand marriage by going back and looking at the beginnings of marriage, going back and looking at the beginning of the Bible and the book of Genesis, which the word Genesis actually means beginnings. And so a couple of weeks ago, we started this series with our first marriage, and we looked at the goodness of marriage. And we saw in chapter 2, verse 18, that there uh, we are told that God says it is not good that man should be alone. And so God and His grace and in His mercy creates Eve, a woman, and unites Adam and Eve together in the goodness of marriage. And this week, as we go further in our series, what I want us to look at this week is the permanence of marriage. And what I want us to see from this passage, and we'll be looking at a couple of other passages as well, is that the permanence of marriage is essential to the goodness of marriage. The permanence of marriage is essential to the goodness of marriage. Now, you might be asking, well, well, what do you mean by permanence? What are, what are we talking about when we talk about the permanence of marriage? When we talk about the permanence of marriage, essentially what we're saying is that in this life, God intends for marriage to be permanent, to be perpetual, to be lasting and unfading, durable, and enduring. When we talk about the permanence of marriage, what we're saying is that marriage is for better or for worse. Marriage is for richer or for poorer. Marriage is in sickness and in health. Marriage is until death do us part. Now, some of you might be saying, well, of course, that's the case. You know, We assume that permanence is, is necessary for the goodness of marriage. But really, when we think about our society and our culture as a whole, and, and maybe, maybe there's a number of people here today that fall into this category, when we think about our, our culture and our society as a whole, we recognize that the permanence of marriage cannot be assumed. This, of course, is shown and reflected in the statistical data on U.S. marriages. In which we know that the modern divorce rate today is two times what it was just 50 or 60 years ago. And no doubt when we talk about divorce, we're talking about something that's very personal, something that's very difficult. I'm sure that there are people here today that have gone through divorces in the past and and maybe you are an innocent party. You know, there are innocent parties in, in divorces. Where, where maybe there was such grievous sin committed against you, maybe there was a serial adultery being committed, and the other partner was unwilling to repent, There's just no way to salvage the marriage. There's situations like that. But even when there's divorce that takes place, and, and maybe you're not the innocent party, even when divorce takes place in those situations, divorce is always painful and hard and difficult and gut-wrenching. And so, so I want to acknowledge that. At the same time, we also have to recognize that with such a dramatic increase in divorce in our society, there has been a significant change that undergirds that in the way in which we think about the permanence of marriage. I think this is illustrated well in a book that was written entitled Divorce, How and When to Let Go. It's written by John Adam and Nancy Williamson. It's a modern book on the subject of divorce, and and listen to how they speak about the permanence of marriage and divorce. Adam and Williamson write, quote, your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it's no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. End of quote. Now you see here in this quote that far from permanence being assumed... Permanence is seen here as a potential enemy to self-fulfillment. And when that's the case, of course permanence should be discarded. However, even in this culture and society in which permanence is no longer valued like it once was, many are finding what the Bible has taught all along. That if you strip permanence out of marriage then you severely undermine the goodness of marriage. The Huffington Post actually published an article in 2011 by Gigi Levinji Grazer. It was entitled, Wusbands, not ex-husbands, but wasbands. That's a whole other story. I won't talk about that, but she prefers to refer to her ex-husband as a husband. Anyways, Wusbands and wives, seven reasons to stay married. Now, the Huffington Post is far from being a bastion for social conservatism or committed to biblical faithfulness, but in this article, Grazer makes the point, really, that we're seeking to make from the text this morning. She talks about the fact that she's been divorced twice. Uh, She uses a good bit of salty language in the article, and so I'll amend some of that for our context today so it'll be more fitting, especially for the children who are among us. But she starts the article out by saying divorce stinks. I mean, it really stinks. If you've got kids, don't do it. Then she goes on to chronicle how her first marriage started when she was young, and she believed that after about three years in this marriage, that it was holding her back from realizing her dreams, from fulfilling herself, from self-actualization. And so after three years, she opted out. She writes in the article, Oprah would have been proud. She was stepping out. She was making her own reality. She was fulfilling her dreams. A few years later, she ended up in a second marriage. This marriage resulted in two children. They were married for 16 years. But then after 16 years, it was difficult, it was hard, and so that marriage ended as well. In the article, she reflects on these two divorces, and now later in her life, how it affected her, and how it affected her children, her financial situation, her security, her overall happiness. And she concludes the article with these words. Quote, in the midst of our separation, this was her second marriage, our family therapist, a cancer survivor in her 60s who'd been practicing for many years, gave me sage advice, which I was too angry or too blind to accept. Wait until the kids are launched, she told me. Who knows, you may even find yourself in love again with your husband. I chose not to take that advice. A big part of me wishes that I had, end of quote. Grazer is in no way claims to be a Christian, but I will say that I admire her honesty and vulnerability in that article. It takes something to look back and to say in your life, "Look, I made a mistake. I brought a lot of grief in my own life and in the lives of others that, that I shouldn't have." You know, Grazer here in this article is discovering what the scriptures have always declared: that permanence is essential to the goodness of marriage. And that if you strip permanence out of the marriage equation, you severely undermine the goodness of marriage. Listen, my friends, I don't want to make that mistake. I don't want you to either. And so I want us to turn to the scriptures this morning and see, what does the Bible have to say to us about the permanence of marriage? The first thing that I want us to see from our text this morning is that in Genesis, Genesis establishes the permanence of marriage. Genesis establishes the permanence of marriage. Look there in verse 24 and 25 of chapter 2. I read it just a few moments ago. We read these words, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." So you see there in verse 24, this is the establishment of marriage here. You see the man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, so there's a breaking away, there's a distinction. There was a, a unit in which a, a man is identified primarily with his father and mother, but then he breaks away from that unit and now he establishes a new unit. He becomes, it goes on to say, one flesh with his wife. And so a new entity is formed. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is not just one plus one equals two, but this is one plus one equals one. That's the math of marriage. And so these two individuals now become one. They become one emotionally, relationally, physically, financially, spiritually. And the assumption is that in creating this new union, that this union is permanent. John Piper actually points out the connection here between verse 24 and the covenant of marriage and verse 25 and the intimacy of marriage. So you see in verse 24, there's a separation from parents. They come together. They form one new union. This is the covenant. And then following that in verse 25, we see the intimacy that this creates. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. They were fully known and yet fully accepted and loved and received. And it's really interesting because once sin enters into the equation, which we'll be considering in a couple of weeks, once sin enters into the equation and the intimacy of verse 25 is compromised, we might assume then that the covenant in verse 24 would be annulled. But that's not the case. The intimacy of verse 25 is compromised, but the covenant is reestablished. So that when Adam and Eve exit the garden, when they are cast out of the garden because of their sin, they do not go their separate ways. But rather they go out of the garden together. We could almost envision them hand in hand walking out of the garden with the hope that although the intimacy has been compromised, the covenant will sustain them. And it will preserve the intimacy, imperfect though it may be. So here we see in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 and even going into Genesis chapter 3, that the permanence of marriage is is established. The permanence of marriage is essential to the ongoing goodness of marriage. And this is both pre-fall and post-fall, before sin and after sin. You know, one thing that I'll just say by way of personal comment is that uh, Nikki and I celebrated our 12-year wedding anniversary uh, about a week ago, actually two weeks ago. I got the flu, so I don't know what time it is. So we celebrated our wedding anniversary a couple weeks ago, and we've been married for 12 years. And I will say by God's grace, we have experienced something of the goodness of the permanence of marriage. Just to be candid, in 12 years, we've had some really rough spots. And you know, hey, hey, I went to Bible college, okay? I went to seminary. I'm a pastor. I've gone on mission trips and been involved in ministry for years. Nikki went to seminary. But here's the thing. I don't care how many years the Bible college you've been to, how many years of seminary you've been to, how many Bible studies you've participated in, how many mission trips you've been on, how many uh, things you've done for the Lord, when you take one person who is a sinner and you unite them to another person who's a sinner, you're going to have problems. And we've had problems. And marriage at times is tough. And what is it that sustains us? What is it that has kept us? Well, we would say first and foremost, surely it's the grace and the mercy of God. But God in His grace and mercy has used the covenant. He's used the promise, the commitment that we made to one another. And praise God He has because, my friends, it is good. The permanence of marriage is good. And here's one reason why it's good. Because a sinner like me, I need someone to stick with me. And when I'm stubborn and when I'm foolish and when I'm hard-headed, I need someone to stick with me. And a sinner like Nikki, she needs someone to stick with her. And the permanence of marriage calls us, binds us to stick with one another. God in His grace here in the beginning of marriage, from the very beginning, hardwires permanence into marriage for our good. Now the second thing I want us to see from the Scriptures this morning is that Jesus insists on the permanence of marriage. Jesus insists on the permanence of marriage. So it's interesting because this passage here is a very important passage about marriage, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, because it's cited a number of times in the New Testament. Jesus cites it in Mark chapter 10. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. So if you go to the New Testament, you start with Matthew, and the next book is Mark. And there we read this account. Of Jesus having an interaction with the Pharisees about the subject of marriage and divorce. In Mark chapter 10, verse 1, we read these words. I still hear pages turning, so I'll give you just a second to get there. (coughs) We read in Mark chapter 10, verse 1, and Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Now, to gain a fuller understanding of what's taking place here, we need to understand the the culture and the context in which Jesus is speaking. So you see there in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, the Pharisees asked Jesus a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, the debate that that was going on at that time centered around a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. It was Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 in which Moses allowed a man, as it states here in verse 4, allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. Now, if you go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, essentially, and you don't have to turn there now, but essentially that passage says that divorce is permitted in a situation in which a husband finds indecency in his wife. Now, then the debate raged. Well, what is indecency? What does that mean? How do we define indecency? And therefore, what is the basis, given what indecency is, what is the basis for a divorce? Now, there were two major schools of thought at that time. There was, first of all, the school of Shammai as it came, as it related to this issue. And the school of Shammai was a more conservative interpretation of the passage. And they said that based on Deuteronomy 24.1, divorce was not permissible except in the case of sexual unfaithfulness, except in the case of adultery. So they interpreted indecency to mean adultery. But there was another school of thought. It was the school of Hillel. And the school of Hillel took a more liberal interpretation. The school of Hillel taught that divorce was permissible on almost any and every ground imaginable. And so they interpreted indecency very broadly. For example, they actually made provisions for a man to divorce his wife if she messed up his dinner, and there are other extreme, absurd examples. But really, the school of Valel, in some ways, is very much so like our culture today. Actually, if you were to Google divorce, I think you might be surprised at some of the things you would find. If you Google divorce, you would get results like easy online divorce, simple divorce online, no-fault divorce for $28.95, easy online divorce for $299. You see how divorce is cheap, it's easy. And so this was very similar to the approach that the school of Hillel took. Now notice that as the Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked him this question, they were setting him up. D- don't, don't be deceived here. This was a test. In verse 2, it actually says, And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, obviously, just like in our day today, this was a very tense subject. It was a hot-button issue in Jesus' day. And the test was, Would Jesus take the side of the more conservative school of Shema, or would he take the more liberal Uh, approach of the school of Hillel. In fact, some people believe that there was even more to it than that though. Because given circumstances and what had happened recently, this was actually a very dangerous question for Jesus to answer. You might remember that John the Baptist, who was a prophet that had come just prior to Jesus, was a very bold man who spoke the truth of God's Word And he had spoken out against Herod, who was the king at the time, against his incestuous marriage. And what was the result? Herod lost his head. He was beheaded because he spoke the truth to Herod. And so some people speculate here that the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and they're posing this question to Jesus because they think to themselves, if we could get Jesus on record, if we could get Jesus to speak about this matter publicly and speak against divorce, maybe his end would be the same as John the Baptist. So how will Jesus respond? How will he handle this test? Well, Jesus begins by placing Moses' words in their original context. Jesus goes on in this passage to explain that Moses' provision for divorce was a concession. That it was not God's original intention. That Moses had allowed for divorce because of the hardness of man's heart, because of our sin, but he never intended for divorce to be the ideal. And so Jesus' emphasis here in responding to the Pharisees is not perhaps what they would expect Jesus doesn't take the approach of trying to come up with all the ways and list of things that might happen that would allow one to get a divorce, to justify getting a divorce. Rather, Jesus' emphasis is on God's original purpose in marriage, which is permanence. So you see there in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 10, Jesus says, but from the beginning, God has made them male and female. He's citing Genesis chapter 1. He made them male and female. Then he cites our passage that we've been looking at from Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And now Jesus gives us his commentary on that passage. So, this is the conclusion Jesus draws. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Notice what Jesus says here. That marriage is not primarily something that man does. Marriage at the end of the day is something that God does. God joins them together as one. And because it is God's work, because He has created this unique oneness and unity and and union in marriage, let not man separate it. Let not man dissolve it, destroy it. God's intention in marriage is that it would be monogamous. That it would be an intimate union. That is enduring and permanent. So simply stated, Jesus here sides with the school of Shema, he upholds the permanence of marriage. Now, of course, we know that in other contexts, Jesus allows for divorce in the case of adultery, similar to the school of Shema. he would have translated and, and, and gives us the understanding that indecency is actually to be equated with adultery or sexual unfaithfulness. But that is not his emphasis here. He doesn't go into all the exceptions, right? Rather, his emphasis here is to stress the permanence of marriage. Notice the radical nature of Jesus' teaching. Jesus speaks into a culture much like our our culture today in which divorce by many people was widely accepted in practice and he speaks with clarity regarding God's original intent in marriage that it would be permanent and enduring. It's interesting because if you look at Matthew's account of this same event, The disciples actually respond to Jesus' answer, and what the disciples say is very interesting. The disciples respond. After Jesus says this, he says, Therefore, let not man separate what God has joined together, right? So Jesus takes this strong line on the permanence of marriage. And we read in Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, the disciples then said to Jesus, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So the disciples, you get, you see where they're coming from, right? You see the culture that they're living in. Divorce was permissible. It was acceptable. It was, it was widely practiced. And so they see Jesus' radical teaching on this matter and it makes them question. It makes them second guess. Well, then should I even enter into this thing? And it makes us ask the question today. Does our teaching on marriage, does our teaching on marriage give anybody pause? To say, man, if the commitment is so radical, so permanent, so enduring, so unbreakable, maybe I should think twice before I do it. And if nobody does that based on the, our teaching regarding marriage, we need to ask the question, why? 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 Is our teaching on marriage consistent with the teaching of Jesus? I'll mention something else on this passage as well. It really boggled my mind for a while. Because if you're reading through the Gospel of Mark and you come to this passage, it really stands out. Actually, up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has declared a couple of times that he is going to be going to the cross. And so he's predicting at this time that he's going to the cross, that he'll be betrayed, that he'll be crucified, and then he'll be raised. And when he does this, when he tells his disciples about this happening, they don't get it at all, but then Jesus calls them to discipleship and he says, listen, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross and you've got to go with me and you've got to follow me. And so there's all this talk about Jesus going to the cross and who Jesus is and he's going to die and he's going to be raised again and if you want to be his disciple, you've got to follow him to the cross and so forth. And then in the midst of all of this, boom, you've got this passage about marriage and divorce. And it just seems strange like it seems out of place like why is this here in the midst of this conversation about the cross and about discipleship and so forth. And so I, I, always, I always struggled with why does Mark put this here? How does this fit in to the narrative, to the storyline? But you may have already gotten it. It's actually pretty clear. This passage in no way in no way is to be separated from Christian discipleship. In fact, In fact, if you are a married person, what Mark is teaching us here in this passage is that an essential part of your discipleship is to embrace the permanence of marriage when it's difficult and when it's hard and when it doesn't feel like it. You see, our society teaches us that if we are in a marriage and it's difficult and it's hard, If we're not being self-fulfilled or we're getting bored or we don't feel like we're getting out of our marriage, what we're putting into our marriage, then we should by all means get out. But the scriptures are clear. Christians will find themselves in hard and difficult marriages. But the solution, when you find yourself in a hard and difficult marriage, if you're a Christian, is not to get out. Rather, the response of the Christian is to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And this is part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But there's good news. Because do you know know the paradigm of discipleship? The paradigm of discipleship that Jesus presents to us over and over again is death leads to life, death leads to life, death leads to life. And here's the good news. If you are willing to die to yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus in marriage, resurrection is real. And you can know life. You can know life as you, as you die to yourself and you, you die to your selfishness and you die to your sin and you commit yourself to another and you experience greater unity and oneness and fellowship with Jesus as you depend upon him and depend upon his grace and depend upon his strength and you feel him and experience him and sustaining you when you think you can't make it another day, you'll experience life. And God in His grace might just use your dying to self every single day to bring life to your marriage. To resurrect it. Because you know God can redeem your marriage. He can. Some of you have, uh, I know many of you actually, and I'm thankful for this, have been influenced by Tim Keller's book, Uh, the meaning of marriage. It's a book that we've used oftentimes in marriage studies here at our church. And Tim Keller gives this statistic. I hope this is so encouraging to you if you find yourself right now in a hard spot in your marriage. Tim Keller gives this statistic. Do you know that studies have shown that two-thirds of those who are in unhappy marriages so they're, they're in an unhappy marriage, they say this marriage is hard, it doesn't make me happy, it's difficult, I'm thinking about getting out. Two-thirds of people that find themselves in unhappy marriages claim to be happily married after five years if they just hang in there and stay married. Isn't that remarkable? Two-thirds of people who say, I'm in an unhappy marriage, if they just hang in there for five years, and that's a long time, right? They just stick it out for five years. At the end of five years, two-thirds of them say, we've got a good marriage. We're doing pretty good. Death really does lead to life. And God can redeem your marriage. So, Genesis establishes the permanence of marriage. Jesus, working off of Genesis, insists on the permanence of marriage. And then third and finally, and this won't be nearly as long, the gospel embodies the permanence of marriage. The gospel embodies the permanence of marriage. So this is not the only place in the New Testament that Genesis 2:24 is used. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Excuse me. And look at verses 31 to 32. The Apostle Paul is speaking here on marriage. Ephesians chapter 5. If if you're using one of the black Bibles and you have the page number, can you just shout it out? 979. 979 if you're using one of the black Bibles. Chapter 5, verse 31. Okay, here's our passage. Paul cites it. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And now Paul gives his commentary. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So, why is permanence essential to marriage? It is essential to marriage for us to experience the goodness of marriage and we've talked about that. But it is also good For reflecting what marriage was always intended to reflect. Namely, the eternal, unchanging, enduring, unfading, everlasting love that Jesus has for us, his people, the church. That's why permanence is good and essential to marriage. Now, one of the things that I have the privilege of doing as a pastor is to officiate uh, wedding ceremonies. And uh, it's a blessing to do that. And one of the things that I often do in those wedding ceremonies is I will say at some point in my brief message that Jesus is committed to the church's good. And Jesus is committed to the church's good until the end. He's not going anywhere. In fact, he will see it through until she becomes the glorious bride she's intended to be. And then I'll often cite Mark 10, where we just were, where Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And at that moment, I, take just a, uh, I give just a little bit of a pause, and I look at the groom, and I look at him in the eyes, and I say, okay, groom, you must never abandon your bride. And bride, and I take a moment, and I pause, and I look her in the eyes, and I say, bride, you must never abandon. Walk out on your husband. And then I pause and I say to both of them, because to do so would be to declare to the world that Christ does not, is not committed to the church and the church does not love Christ. It would be an attack against the very gospel itself. But Christ declared his love to the church when he said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And listen, my friends, the permanence of marriage is essential and it is good to marriage because it reflects what marriage was always intended to reflect the everlasting, enduring, unfading, unconquerable love of Jesus for his people. Now, I know that there may be some here this morning and you say, well, that's all well and good. but what if I've already messed it all up? You might be here this morning and you say, I'm divorced, I'm single, and I remember you were talking about before, there's innocent parties in divorce, there's people who they try to make the marriage work and they try to make the marriage work and the other person just won't and there's nothing they can do and there's innocent parties, but that's not me. I'm not an innocent party in this. There's others of you here this morning and you think to yourself, divorced and single, that would be nice. I've been divorced three times and I'm on my fourth marriage. What about me? Well, let me just say, and you may not have seen it yet, but this, this message this morning is extraordinarily good news for you. And here's the reason why. Notice what Paul says in verse 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Here it is. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and to the church. Do you see how that's good news for you? If you say I've messed it all up, Let me encourage you, first of all, acknowledge that, confess it, repent of it, look to Jesus and trust in Him for forgiveness, and then receive this good news that marriage was given to us in order to reveal to us Christ's love for us in the gospel. And Christ has left everything He left his Father who was in heaven, right? A man shall leave his father and mother. Christ left his Father in heaven and he gave up everything. He died on the cross to take all your sin and all your failures upon himself and then through faith he united himself to you in marriage so that you are his and he is yours and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you and you know why? Because he promised he wouldn't. Because of the covenant. Because he's bound by his word and he never, never, never goes back on his word. The permanence of marriage is glorious good news for you and me because for people who have spurned the permanence of marriage, the permanence of marriage reveals that Christ has married himself to us and he will never leave us or forsake us. That, my friends, is good news. And if you embrace it and you receive it in your marriage, no matter how difficult or hard it might be, you'll find the grace and the strength to persevere. And by God's grace on the other side, you might find a goodness that you never realized you could experience. Let's pray and ask for God's grace. Father, we confess that our marriages in so many ways are broken because we're broken. And Father, we thank You that in the midst of our brokenness in which we are tempted to abandon each other and we are tempted to abandon You, that You come with unconquerable love and commit Yourself to us and call us to commit ourselves to one another. Father, we confess that that at first, especially in our society and culture, does not seem like good news, but God, remove the blinders. And help us to see how good it is. And Father, we pray that we would revel in it. That we would revel in your everlasting commitment to us. And we pray that it would transform our marriages. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy. I thank you for for every failure, for every brokenness, for every need. There is sufficient grace. Lord, pour that grace out upon us now. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.